Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We've been in a series on the book of Jonah. We crossed uh, halftime last Sunday and we turned a a hinge in the narrative uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the the great fish and then was vomited out onto dry land. And then he wanders into the city of Nineveh. He responds this time on the second time to God's call and he preaches this amazing five-word sermon, and he speaks doom and gloom to the Ninevites, and now we're at the point in the story where uh, we see the fruit of all that's come before, and all that's come before in this weird, strange book in the Old Testament is that it's different from most prophetic books in the Old Testament. It's different because it doesn't focus primarily on the word that God gives to whomever he's speaking, but it focuses on the prophet itself, himself, Jonah. And it's a curious book because Jonah is designed in such a way that when we here in Cleveland, Ohio, read it today, this Sunday morning, that it acts as a mirror into the things deep in our hearts. God shows us our own hearts through this prophet Jonah in the weirdest, strangest ways. And so what we've learned so far is that Jonah is a prophet, and so God is speaking to him, but he doesn't quite like much the call that God has placed on his life. So much so that he runs in the exact opposite direction God is calling him to go. And there's just all kinds of mirrors in Jonah, isn't there? How many times we find ourselves in Jonah's place? We run the exact opposite way of uh, the way that God calls us to go. And in this section of the narrative, which we'll read here in a second, we're going to focus on repentance and the work of God in that for an entire city. In the section that we'll read this morning, we'll see the Hebrew word for repentance used over four times in two verses. It's a really important word. And we'll see the power of God in the repentance of people and where his role is in that and where our role is in that. It's funny, we spend... We, the church, capital C, will spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put on these great like revivals or these big stadiums, you know, and, and it'll just be lights, camera, action, um, fog shows, everything, the works, you know. And they even may get some folks to come forward. You remember the the Billy Graham crusades of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and how many millions of people heard the gospel as a result of Billy Graham's teaching, his faithfulness, his saying yes to following the call of God on his life. And you know, you, you remember these scenes in baseball stadiums of thousands of people coming forward, giving their lives to Jesus. And I'm not devaluing that at all. 
I believe there's true transformation. People, probably countless people can say, you know, I gave my life to God at a Billy Graham crusade or at a passion conference uh, uh, in Atlanta or at, a, um, at a, a revival tent somewhere and it's all well and good. But you just wonder, is revival the best that we can do? Is it too low of a goal? Is what we're really after seeing the, the, the kingdom of God come to the earth to stay? And I imagine it's just something that we haven't tasted yet. Like the best thing that we can do is say, mm, let's put a whole bunch of lights and shows and cameras together and see if we can save some souls and then not care for them in the aftermath. Well, Jonah preaches five words in his little sermon Let's read it. What does he say? What does Jonah say? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And on the first day, here's, what, here's his sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Bam, done. That's it. And the whole city repents. In 1907, there was a revival in Pyongyang, North Korea. North Korea. And prior to that revival that broke out, mainly in the Methodist church, there were uh, different political pacts that were signed between North Korea and, um, and Japan. And in 1901 and in 1904, there were these these movements from Japan to oppress the people of North Korea. There was calamity in the country, you would say. And through that, like, ordering of time, theologians and commentators and scholars through the year would agree that that's what fueled this revival. The people of North Korea were primed to receive the gospel, and they did. The Methodist church saw a boom in attendance. Thousands of people came to Christ in North Korea over the course of the next couple of years. The main source of revival that happened there in North Korea was when a preacher, and no one remembers his name, drew people to the hatred ethnically that the North Koreans carried in their hearts toward the Japanese people and said, let's lay that down at the feet of Jesus as well. And when that happened, the Spirit of God breathed on that and blew it up. God was preparing their hearts and it included the sense of laying down this, this sense of nationalism that we hate these, uh, this other group of people and, 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 and this hatred of them. God was working and in that we can see that repentance is a work of God, that he will use things like famine, uh, war, all of these things to bring folks into relationship with themselves, to turn their hearts towards himself. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. In this, we see that repentance is God's work. He initiates it. If there's any sense of turning in you or in I to God, we can say that God planted that in our hearts, in our lives first. Right? We love because you first loved us. God is the great initiator. 
So any move towards God, any uh, fresh revelation of who God is, God put that there first. It wasn't my good idea or your good idea, but he's the great initiator. Any, uh, show, any expression of kindness to your family, to your neighbor, uh, to your coworker, that was God-inspired. And the same thing goes with repentance. When we see people um, on a large scale turn to God, God has been preparing those people for a long time. And we can see the same thing in the narrative of the Assyrians, the Ninevites, long before Jonah ever came to preach in the city. So like I said, the, the, the story's focus shifts now at this point off of Jonah and on to the Ninevites. Jonah's still at a bad place in his heart, y'all. He's still, though he's following the call of God, though he said yes here on this second time around, he still would be quite happy with seeing the Assyrians destroyed. If we're honest with one another, he doesn't want to see them repent at all. It's very clear, especially even after they repent. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to point out the, the reality here in the text that Jonah still doesn't want to see people come to God's mercy. He's still unwilling to usher in the mercy of God that he claims for himself. And so just keep that in mind as we read. We're going to be Jonah 3, 5 through 10. And we love the word of God here at Vineyard Cleveland. So if you have a paper version or you have the Bible app and you want to turn or swipe there with me, let's read along together. Jonah 3, 5 through 10. He's just preached, and we read this. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, here's, here's a key, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust, or ashes. Then the king, then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let uh, man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Okay, the first thing we need to see here is that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, had eager ears and open hearts. As we've led up to so far this morning, God was preparing the Ninevites to receive this message. For such a hard message, you would think that God would need a little bit of time to prepare folks to hear this. Forty more days and the city's going to burn. That's pretty tough to hear. 
Well, there's, out, there's extra biblical sources that tell us that just like the situation in Pyongyang in North Korea in 1907, that there was this sense of like calamity after calamity. There were even local prophecies outside the Bible given to the Assyrians that someday some weird guy was going to come and the city would be torn apart, that the city would be destroyed, that the king would be overturned. And so for whatever reason... The Assyrians were being primed, were being prepared to receive repentance as a gift from God. It says that they believed God there in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. The Hebrew word for believed is aman. It's where we get our word amen from. Yes, let it be. The Ninevites believed God. First, we saw in the In the ship where Jonah was running from God, that the pagan sailors repent and they believe. And here mirroring that instance in the city, we see now that all of the Ninevites are repenting and believing God. Jonah is trying to get away from the call of God and doesn't want people to repent. And God is working. (laughs) God is working in the middle of that. Jonah can't help (laughs) by his running away. It seems counterintuitive. Jonah can't help by his running away people coming to God. It's so strange. He's not trying to save souls from, for God. In fact, he wants to see these people demolished. And yet God still works. Repentance is a work of God. They believed. The Ninevites believed God. We see the power of God's word at work. That when it's God who speaks the word, change always follows. Transformation always happens on the other side of God's voice to us. Yours and my words can only go so far with people. But God's word cuts to the very heart. When it's God who's speaking, true transformation happens. In Hebrews 4.12, we read this about the word of God. We read that the word of God is alive. It's living, it's active, it's sharp. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts. There's the mirror. It's a mirror to us. It judges the thoughts and attitudes or motivations of our hearts. The writer of Hebrews says, There's a power in God's word that the Ninevites are keen to. And we also see here in Jonah 3 that repentance is for everybody. Repentance is for everybody. Repentance is a gift that's given by God to everybody from the most important to the least significant in society, in culture. That God gives repentance, this form of turning. What does it mean? What does repentance mean? We'll get to it a little bit more later. Uh, Let's do it now. Let's do it now. Okay, so repentance truly is a work of God. And it's both in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's uh, the definition is turning. Repentance means to turn. And we're told in scripture that God repents, strange, 
in verse 10. That God repents. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for definition's sake, repentance for everybody, from the greatest to the least, it's a turning. So everyone is turning in Nineveh. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. There's a humbling that follows this that I want us to pick up in verse 6. So from the greatest to the least, everybody repents. Everybody's turning. And then we're told that the king repents, and that's a big deal. That's a big deal. In the first or second week, I went into a little bit of detail about how violent the Assyrian culture really was. The Ninevites were terrible, terrible, terrible as a culture. They imposed their will and imposed their violence on other nations. And the sense of overriding violence in their culture was working so that it was poisoning their own society. And you get a little bit of insight into that here in the book of Jonah when it says that everyone must each turn away from their ways of violence. So he's speaking societally the king, and he's speaking individually. The heart of the king, knowing the people, says each, of, each one of you now has the seed of violence that's coming to bloom, and it's tearing our society apart. They're plotting evil against one another. They're murdering one another in mass numbers. It's a violent, violent world if you're a Ninevite. And so word reaches the king, and the people repent first. They lead the way, and then the king follows. He catches wave of what's going on, that there's this crazy, uh, stinky fish man who's preaching the destruction of the city, and you all are listening and so then the king decrees it. And this would be a humbling act for him. This isn't, a, this isn't the way that the Hebrew ex- explains it here in the narrative. It's not a sense of like spiritual arrogance from the king or self-righteousness. This would be a humbling thing for the king to put on sackcloth and to dust himself all over with ashes and then declare it for the, the whole of society. Even the animals get in on this repentance. Which seems weird to us, but it wouldn't be that weird for uh, culture back in those days. That even the cows are required to fast. No more eating for Lucy. We're repenting at the Brusco house. Our dog, no more kibbles for a couple days. We're turning to God. <laughs> what, what, what if like, it would be like if the most powerful political figure would be like, listen, United States of America, We're going to fast for the next seven days and all of your house pets, cats and dogs included, don't feed them for like the next seven days. We're just going to turn to God. That would probably never happen. And what else would probably never happen would be to see a political figure in in, in, in the state our culture is in and get up and do what the Ninevite, the Assyrian king does here. To publicly humiliate himself. 
The word for God that the king uses is not specific to Yahweh. That's one thing to take note of. It's Elohim. It's this general sense of like, okay, that guy's God says he's going to destroy the city. And so we'd better turn to that guy's God. It's not as personal yet for the Assyrians or Ninevites. But it's personal enough that the king decrees a citywide fast in a form of repentance. So in verses 7 through 9, the word goes out, even the animals repent. (laughs) And what we see in this is that in verses 7 through 9 is that our walk should match our talk. The Assyrians were an evil and wicked people and there had to be change. In verse 8 there it says, let them each turn from his evil ways, both in general, them, and individual, each. The responsibility is indicated for both. The word evil is significant in Jonah as well. It's used all over the passage. The Hebrew word is raka. Don't raka. Jesus says in the New Testament, don't raka others in your heart. Stop rakaing others. It occurs nine times in the book of Jonah. And it carries the idea of evil, trouble, calamity, or destruction. So whenever that word raka is used, it's like in this form of trouble, calamity, destruction. The phrase their violence is literally from the violence which is in their hands. The Ninevites are carrying around violence in their hands towards others. It's a popular one with Old Testament prophets. They like to use this term violence. And it suggests moral wickedness and aggressive violence physically towards others. So there's a moral thing, a moral violence, which I believe Jesus speaks to in the New Testament. And there's a physical wickedness, which the prophets speak to. And now we come to the good news. Here's the good news. So last week, I know, and you guys have been such troopers over the past two weeks. It's not easy. It's God's word, so we'll do it. But it's not easy. Last week, we talked about obedience. It's never easy to talk about obedience. For some of you, it might be. Some of you, it might be really easy. For me, it's not. My rebel heart. And then today, we're talking about repentance. So kudos to you to sit through it, to hear the word of God. That he does wish us to be faithful and obedient to what he's calling us to be. And repentance to see it as a gift, not as a, as a challenge to us. As a negative thing, but a gift from God that we would turn to him. So kudos to you for sticking it out through a couple of tough talks. And now comes the hinge point. Unfortunately, not for Jonah. But we see That our God is a gracious God, as we sang this morning in worship, that he is merciful and he has mercy for us and he has it in abundance. And we may think that he's out of it, but he shows us that he has more mercy for us than what we can contain. He's a gracious God. We read in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God saw their works. And the King James says that God repented. How does that hit you? How does does that question, uh, that phrase hit you 
that God repented. That's troublesome for a lot of theologians. It's troublesome for, uh, for a number of different reasons, philosophically and just how we live our days out. We're, we're told over and over again that God doesn't change. He's the same in his character yesterday, today, and forever. Well, doesn't that seem to be in contrast with what we're seeing here, that God repents, that he changes his mind, that he turns from one, one way of going to another way? The phrase in Hebrew is slightly different from what the Ninevites do. The Ninevites out and out repent, nikam. There's an extra word that's added when it's applied to God. And it's, more, and it's used all over the New Testament. And a lot of times it's applied to God's person. It will be like someone has lost a loved one. A loved one has passed away. And then a relative comes to visit that person who's experiencing loss in order to comfort that person. You would say that that person has come to repent or to, to change, to, to relent, to, to show compassion towards that person who has lost the loved one. And that's what's going on here in the narrative relenting is a part of God that does not involve a change in his nature. So he does stay the same. He is the same. He is all merciful. But he is able to keep his nature, his unchanging nature, and yet relent from sending calamity to people. And that's a big, big deal. When you come to talk about who God is. God's relenting is his consistent and appropriate response to people's repentance over sin. Nineveh changed direction. God did not. And here's the thing. Jonah's upset. We'll read next week as we close the series. Jonah's still upset. Hang with me. Jonah's upset that the whole city doesn't burn, that they actually turn to God. The whole city and Jonah's ticked off. <laughs> what? I want to challenge us to see ourselves within the mirror of Jonah. Is there a time when someone else in your life does really well? How do you feel towards that person? Maybe it's an enemy. Maybe it's someone in your sphere or maybe an estranged family member or whoever. Maybe it's someone like that who comes back to God or makes a good decision in their life or, uh, you know, gets a job promotion or is experiencing good in their life, but you don't quite much like them. How do you respond to that news that they're doing well? Just me? Just me? 
Yeah, there's a challenge in here to um, celebrate God's goodness on folks that we don't particularly care for. There's a challenge here to celebrate the goodness of God on every human being's life, especially those we don't particularly care for. And God, the same violence that's been stirred up in Nineveh, the city of blood, the same violence that runs in our streets that we judge from afar and say, oh God, that would never be me. That would never, I would never hate those people like that runs through our veins as well. Do you not have a heartbeat? Are you not human like me, flesh and blood? And so we see the mercy of God being poured out on an entire city. And Jonah's still focusing on himself. He can't get past the fact that God, with his whole heart, loves these people. Loves them endlessly, eternally. To the point that he changes the fate of the entire city because he loves them so much. And don't you know that that's the way that God feels about the person you hate in your heart? That that person that you've seen as an adversary, that person that you've kept at arm's length simply because they're annoying, that person that has done you wrong, that person who has stolen from your business, that person who has divorced you, that person who has uh, done wrong to you, that God loves them with his whole entire heart. And when we wake to the mercy of God for us and who we are, we find a capacity there to love those God loves. And that's the good news. And that's why repentance is such a gift to the church and to anyone who would come. Watch what Jesus says about it. It's there from the very beginning in the New Testament. In Matthew, Jesus says, from that time, he began to preach, repent, turn, for the kingdom of God has come near. In Luke 5, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance lets God restore, forgive, and purify us. The Lord teaches us humility through repentance. It's an opportunity for you and I to get low, to admit your mistakes, to come clean. Could there be any greater thing? We get free in that. Repentance drives the enemy away from us. Repentance keeps the enemy away from us. When we repent, Jesus frees us from the torment of sin, from those things you thought you had only to find out they had you. Repentance is, repe repentance is like um, in the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon. It's all right. Um, 
There's this showdown between the dwarf king and a young lord, Elrond, and, and, they're, 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 and, and, and they're, they're using their axes to cut rock. And they're just cutting these rocks in half, you know, this huge axe and these huge pieces of stone. And repentance is like that axe that cuts the rock in half and splits us. The chain from sin is broken. And repentance is the vehicle that God has provided for us to be free from that chain, the torment of sin, the cage of sin. When we repent, Jesus frees us. And repentance is also the vehicle that leads us into fullness of life with Jesus. The great fish was a vehicle. We talked about that. Luke is really into Corvettes. My son is really into Corvettes right now. He's like, I want this one. I want a C8. I'm like, do you have $80,000 just lying around? (laughs) Have a great fish instead. Like Jonah, (laughs) I'd love to get you a C8. I'd love to lavish you with a new Corvette. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not going to be what happens. The great fish was this vehicle to get Jonah closer to his calling, yes? It actually took him physically right back where he started across the Mediterranean. Repentance is the vehicle that draws us into relationship with Jesus. It's the way to him. I don't know of another way to get to Jesus than through the humbling process of repentance. I don't. I really don't. I wish there was another way sometimes. I wish there was another way that I didn't have to come clean with all my faults and I didn't have to enter through that door. But that's the door. That's the way in. To say, I've blown it, God. I need something that I can't produce in and of myself. I need you. I need your work. And to see that work happen in our life requires that we get low and we say, I'm flawed. I don't have it all together. And here's where I've blown it. Specifically, this is where I've blown it. And and to know that this isn't on us either. To know, to go full circle and to say that even that, the confession of the sins that we're aware of and the ones we aren't, is even an act of God, an act of grace that he initiated that. He initiated that awakening in us to see that something was terribly wrong. To see that there was fracture in our relationship is a gift from him. And so it's this vehicle that draws us all the way into his presence. We're going to finish up here just with the thought that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. That when we turn, that turn is initiated, fueled, and cheered on by Jesus himself. He empowers this repentance, and all we do is follow his lead. It's his kindness that turns us towards himself. So wherever you picture yourself this morning, as you join me in standing, wherever you picture yourself this morning, we're going to head into ministry time. That posture before God's throne, you might say that Uh, examine for a moment. 
What, what is your posture? What is my posture before the throne of God, before the cross of Christ? Is your posture one of open hands before him, accepting his forgiveness, his mercy over your lives? Maybe, maybe your posture is one of your back. You're, you're, you're turning your back towards God. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's kind of uh, before God, but kind of shameful. Maybe there's something in your life that's hidden. That God says, I want, you to, I want you to be face to face with me so that there's no more shame in your life. Whatever your posture is before the cross of Christ, here's what I guarantee you. That it's his kindness. We read in his word that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And no matter what, you're going to experience his goodness on the other side of turning to him. And so... Uh, Christine and, and Billy had introduced me to this song um, this past week. I was a little bit late to the party, hey? But I just love this song. And during the course of this song, if there is something, uh, we're going to do ministry time a little bit different. Is that okay? Okay. So um, during the course of this song, if there's something through, you know, as we're talking about repentance, as we're talking about turning to God, there's something in your life. You know, maybe you're holding bitterness towards someone else. Maybe you're torn up about the way that you were treated by somebody else. I want to invite us, wherever we're at, to come lay that down at the cross of Jesus. To experience his mercy over your life in that specific area. And it could be different for any number of us. But as we're watching and listening to this song... As we're worshiping together, I just want to encourage you to step out from where you are and just stand in front. Just stand in front. As you see, uh, as you sense, as you see that place in your life that God is identifying in this moment, and there's one for each of us, that you would come out from where you are sitting and come stand in front and let God work on you. Let God change your heart. Does that sound good? All right, let's worship.